everyone, welcome back to our study of the Dhammapada. Today we continue on with verses number 31 and 32, which go as follows. Appamada ratobiku pamade bhayadasiva sangyo janang anungthulang dahang agiva gachati number 31 and 32 appamada rato bhikkhu pamade bhayadasiva abhambo parihanaya nibana seva santike so we'll go through these one one by one by one the first the first verse they're very similar um, the first verse is appamada rato bhikkhu a monk who, or a bhikkhu, who delights in heedfulness, pamade bayadasiva, and sees the fearsomeness or the danger in heedlessness. Sangyo janang anungtulang, the fetters or the the bond, the binds, no, the those things that bind, the fetters. No. That are fetters both large and small. Dahang agiva gachati. He goes through them like uh, a, f a burning fire. So this verse was told in regards to a story uh, about a particular monk. And the story is quite short and doesn't have so much meaning, but it helps us to understand or, or visualize the simile here because it was a simile that came to this monk who was practicing uh, diligently. He was practicing meditation and he was traveling along when suddenly a fire broke out and he, uh, the, he, he was walking through the forest and suddenly there was a fire and the whole forest was being consumed by fire. And so he quickly went to a place of safety up on a large uh, hilled area where there were no trees. And he watched the fire consuming the trees and he watched it go slowly through the forest, destroying the entire forest. And he took this as a, as a kind of a metaphor for his practice. And it was something, of course, very visual. You know? People who, look, who, who, who stare at fire, it, it becomes an image in their mind. You can actually practice it as a meditation because it's something that sticks quite clearly in the mind. And so as he was meditating, this came to him, came back to him, this image of the fires just consuming everything. And so he actually applied this to his practice and said to himself, just as that fire goes through the forest, so, so too should I go through the defilements. And the Buddha came to him and, and uh, confirmed that and said, yes, indeed, a monk who delights in heedfulness and sees the fearsomeness, the danger in heedlessness, burns up the fetters, large and small, just as a fire burns up the trees, burns up the forest. The second verse was told based on a completely different story of a different sort, and uh, also very fairly short, uh, but the meaning is very similar. Appamada ratu bhikkhu pamade bhayadasiva. That's the same. A monk who delights 
in heedfulness and sees the danger in heedlessness. Abambo parihanaya. He is unable to uh, fall away, or he is un. It's not possible for such a person to fall away or to go to waste or to um, to to waste away. Nibbana seva santike. Indeed, such a person is very close to nibbana, or close to freedom. And the story here is another simple story with uh, sort of an, an interesting idea to it. The story is of a monk who was well known for, his name was Niga, Nigamatissa, he was well known for his frugality, his, his fewness of wishes, and his strict behavior, not seeking out uh, luxury or, or special things. And so even though he was quite near to Savati, where the Buddha was staying and where there were so many faithful lay disciples who were providing the monks with so much luxury and so much um, um, affluence or opulence, you might say, he, he never came to accept the gifts of these people. And so the monks watched him and they, they, they watched this behavior that he would go for alms round and every day he would go to his family, the, the village where he grew up, which was you know, fairly close to Savati or, or a bit away from Savati. And he would go and collect food from them and then go back and live in his forest. And he never came down whenever there was an invitation or, or a meal, um, whenever there was, there was the offering of requisites. He would never take part in the offer, never come to receive these things. And so the monks kind of got the feeling that he was clinging to his family and he was just spending all his time amongst his family, not getting involved in Buddhist uh, culture, the Buddhist culture that centered around Savati. And so they told this to the Buddha, and the Buddha called him up and said, is it true that you're acting like this, that you're not getting involved in the, the society, or you're not, you're not coming to accept the gifts of these faithful people? And he said, well, and, and that you're, you're instead clinging to your family and, and getting involved in, in, and getting caught up in um, your, your family affairs. And he said, well, it's true that I'm not coming for these invitations, but it's not true at all that I'm caught up in in my family affairs or, caught or attached to my family. These, I think to myself, these people give me enough food to survive. The food that I get from the village is enough to survive and, and that's it. You know, the, the duty for the food is finished. Why should I go to seek out more? I get enough food to survive and then I go back and, and practice meditation on my own. And the Buddha actually um, praised him for this. And as a result, said this is this is how a this is how a student of mine should act. And he told the story of the past where he himself, where the Buddha himself, in one of his past lives, was a parrot and was very um, it was just a story of uh, of contentment, where he was content in the same way and not needing to go anywhere, and just taking what came to him, not seeking out further further uh, requisites or further material gain. And so then he said this verse, such, such a monk is, is not, not declining, it's not, he's not a backsliding person, he's not a person who is giving up the training because they do this. The person who has no interest in Buddhist culture, you know, get, taking part in the society, such a person actually is quite close to Nibbana for their frugality.
this is a common theme actually that we can talk about. The, but, but the verses themselves are quite similar and as with many of the stories, they, they relate much more to the general practice than they do to the actual. The verses uh, relate much more to our actual practice than they do to the stories themselves. So it's a way of using some very ordinary things to, um, to, to, to give a teaching or to, to uh, use in, in our meditation practice. The main theme, as the theme of this whole chapter has been, is heedfulness or, or vigilance, which we've, we've explained as you know, having mindfulness, always having mindfulness, every moment, moment by moment, being mindful, not getting angry, and having a level head, having a balanced mind, having your mind uh, clearly aware of things, neither partial towards or against something, having your mind stable and, and clearly perceiving the objects of awareness, and slowly giving up your, 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 your greed. So basically being mindful and, and giving up partiality. Mindfulness is considered to be the essence of this, this teaching on heedfulness. So the point of our practice should be twofold, to develop this, um, this state of mind that is mindful, that is vigilant, and to avoid the state which is negligent. This is a common theme in the Buddha's teaching, that you'll see this twofold teaching. And the Buddha even explained it in detail. He said, this is how you would teach a horse. If a... Uh, if you have a horse that is untrained and you want to train it, then first of all you train it teaching it, uh, you train it with a, a, a kind lesson. You know, you're kind to the horse, you encourage it on, you give it carrots. You, know, you use a carrot to teach, um, giving it rewards when it does good things and teaching it in, in, a, in a kind way. If it doesn't react to that, then you teach it in a harsh way, you use the, the stick. And if it doesn't react to either of those, then you kill the horse. And so the Buddha said, this is how I teach my, my disciples. I teach them kindly at first, and then I teach them harshly if that doesn't work. And if even that doesn't work, then I kill them. And so he explained what this means. First of all, the first way to teach is to teach good things. What are the good things? What, is, what are wholesome things? What are wholesome types of behavior? In the hopes that they'll catch on by themselves, that without having to reprimand them or scold them, that they will be inspired and take up this teaching, take up the practice for themselves. If that doesn't work, then you teach them what are the bad things. You say, this is bad, this is wrong, this is wrong, as a means of scolding them, as a means of stopping them from backsliding, stopping them from falling into uh, unwholesomeness. And if that doesn't work, what he means by killing them is you stop teaching them. You give up teaching them, you, you think that this person is useless and you, you take them out of your, uh, your realm of instruction. And this is what it means in, in the Buddha's teaching to kill someone. And so here we have a, a, a teaching of this sort, where the Buddha, on the one hand, is explaining the good thing. Being, being appamada is, is something that we should delight in. We should delight in heedfulness and really see the benefit of it. See that every moment that you're mindful, your mind is clear, like pure water like the pure nature around us, free from, uh, free from pollution, free from defilement. When you go off in the forest and you see a pure waterfall, 
we should delight in our mindfulness in the same way. It's like this forest pool or this forest waterfall or this clear water that is unpolluted, unsullied, untainted by any sort of uh, artificial, any sort of foreign uh, element. When we practice mindfulness, we, we, we feel somehow like the still forest pool or like the waterfall, feel quite natural. And you can feel the same sort of delight as an ordinary person would have for such a, a, a sight when they go off into the forest and see the waterfall. Mostly people, that's the closest they can get to this clarity, you know, is by seeing something so pure, so, so natural. When we practice, when we develop our mindfulness here in the forest, you somehow begin to feel very much like the natural forest. Your mind becomes very natural and very pure. And so this is something that we can delight in. Of course, in the beginning in our meditation, it seems the opposite. It seems that what we delight in is uh, negligence. What is most delightful is the following after the defilements, following after our desires. What is delightful is stories and fantasies and um, beautiful sights and sounds and so on, the objects of the sense. Very difficult, the Buddha said, is very difficult to find delight in heedfulness. And so this is something that has to be impressed upon us. Here we have two verses that explain the need for it. An ordinary person is going in the opposite direction. This is why they are unable to have a, a, a balanced mind, why they're unable to uh, keep their minds above the vicissitudes of life. When good things come, they chase after them. When bad things come, they run away from them. And they're always in a state of greater and greater stress and, and dissatisfaction. So the Buddha is teaching us something that is quite different from the way of the world, the development, and not only the development, but finding delight in the opposite way that ordinary people would find delight, coming to incline our minds just as a tree would incline in one direction or the other, where our minds are ordinarily inclining towards negligence. We teach ourselves to incline towards heedfulness, something that we should delight in. So this is the teaching on good things. The teaching on bad things is seeing the danger in that which we ordinary delight, ordinarily delight in. Ordinarily we can't see the danger. We cling to these things and we only see the, the, the gratification of them, the benefit of them, that we get some kind of a pleasure in the present moment. And we don't see the bait, or we don't see the hook behind the bait. We're unable to see the, the development and the cultivation of addiction. We're unable to see the imbalance in the mind and the, the stress and the, the power that is essential or inherent in clinging. When you cling to something, you're creating a power in your mind, a power of addiction, a powerful habit. You're creating a habit of mind that, that creates requirement, that creates the, the need for such a thing in order to be happy. It's like bringing you out of balance, seeing the danger that, that, that comes from partiality because being partial towards something takes you out of balance in favor of it and makes you more and more averse to the opposite, more and more averse to that which is not in, in your estimation of, or within your estimation of what is, what is beneficial or what is good, what is pleasant. We can talk about the many dangers of these things and this is, some, this is the other part of the Buddhist teaching is talking about the negative side. 
the, the fact that it leads us to fight with one another, why we go to war, why there is such a thing as economy, or why there is such a thing as laws, why all of these things exist is because of our, mainly because of our property, our desire for, for material gain. They say there's enough resources to feed and, and clothe all the people in the world. But because of our negligence, because of our inability to be content with what we have, we're taking from others and withholding from others, stealing from others, cheating others, and all the time creating great stress and suffering. And any time that we can't get what we want, any time that we're denied the objects of our pleasure, then it, it gives rise to it can give rise to anger and it can destroy friendships. It does destroy friendships. It destroys families. Um, the whole issue now of divorce, how people become married and then can't stay married, and now the, the common thing is for people to be married a short time and then decide that they, they, they have other interests and they'll pursue a second marriage or a third marriage and so on, never being satisfied, never being content, and as a result experiencing great suffering. And, and because they can't see this, the, the danger in it, they they're unable to remember, unable to keep in their mind, or not willing to keep in their mind, because they delight so much in the objects of, of pleasure. They forget quite easily the suffering that they've been through. So people will, will claim that they have a happy life and so on when they've actually gone through an incredible amount of suffering because they're unable to remember it. And so as a result, they're continuously seeking after more and more pleasure, unable to remember or recall or realize the suffering that they've had to bear as a result of it. Often they'll think that this is the best that one can expect, this pleasure, pain, pleasure, pain, um, the, the dichotomy, the, like the yo-yo effect, or the pendulum effect, swinging back and forth, and creating more and more stress in the mind. It's not half-half either. The more you cling uh, and the more partial you are to things, the more stress you have in general. So even though you might get all of the things that you want, the stress that's building up in your mind can be quite intense. It can create headaches, it can create um, tension in the muscles and so on, tension in, in your limbs. It can create sickness in the body because of so much uh, stress, even good stress, even the desire side can create great stress in the body and in the mind. And it winds you up and winds you up until you aren't able to get anymore. So that's the two-sided teaching. That's the first half of both of these verses. Now where they differ, the first, the first verse is, is quite interesting for us to think about and, and remember in our practice about how the practice should progress. That our practice is not going to be something that we're going to complete in one day or in one course or maybe even in one lifetime. We can try our best, and the Buddha said, if you really put your heart into it, in seven years you can become an arahant, or even in seven days you can become an arahant. But it may be that that doesn't happen for us. It may be that because of our karma, because of our duties, because of our future, which is uncertain, that we're unable to make it. The, the way we should look at our practice is this steady, um, kind of like a juggernaut, that... that destroys everything in its path, no matter what, com what comes to block it from its path, the juggernaut will continue in its path. And it doesn't have to go quickly, it doesn't have to rush, 
because it knows that nothing can stand in its way. This is like, like the fire in the forest. It doesn't immediately burn up the trees, but nothing can stop it. When, when, it's, when it's taken hold of the forest, all there is to do is to wait for it to destroy all of the trees. So, uh, the, the problem is that often people come into the practice with the idea that they're going to suddenly have some profound realization and all of their troubles are going to disappear that suddenly they're going to become enlightened. We hear about becoming enlightened and we think that it's a momentary thing that didn't require, um, or, or, or that rather than happening gradually, you do work, work, work as hard as you can and, and, and there's an explosion of enlightenment suddenly. And so we often mistake our, our realizations for this experience of enlightenment. We'll have some epiphany and we'll become complacent as a result because we'll think we've made it. This is why we consider this one of the upakilesas. One of the upakilesas is jnana, as I was talking about before. Even getting, even even having good realization. So, as one of the meditators said today, they 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 coming back and doing the course again. They're surprised to find the old defilement still there, when they thought that they had rooted them out already. And so the the. The thing that we, what we should keep in mind, is how slow and, and inexorable our practice will be. Our practice will not be quick, and the quicker we want it to be, the slower the results will become, because then there's more craving and more clinging. We have to work through the defilements in our mind one by one by one, piece by piece by piece, little by little by little. So the more you practice, the slower you realize that it is, and the more realistic you become about the results that you should expect the more patient you become. We should be patient like the fire, or patient like the juggernaut, that, that is confident in their progress, but not ambitious, and not overconfident, and not hurrying. So, the, the, it says here how, how there's nothing stays in the way of the fire, that whether they be big, big trees or small trees, the, tr the, the fire destroys, obliterates them all. In the same way, our practice will allow us to get rid of everything, all of our attachments. But it happens as it's going to happen. It happens inexorably, like a fire burning. So, so we should be very patient in our practice and methodical as well. Part of the teaching on heedfulness is being methodical. You know, that we should uh, not hurry ahead or not skip things, not 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 skip any uh, of our defilements, thinking that's only a minor defilement. We should see the danger in every little thing. And this Buddha said, Anumatesu vajesu Seeing the fearsomeness, the danger, and even the smallest offense, or the smallest uh, wrong in our minds. And in this way we'll be like the fire that, that inexorably destroys all of the defilements in the mind. This is the first one. The second one is sort of this reassurance, deals much more with the confidence that we should have as meditators, that if we're practicing in the right way, even though it may seem at times nothing's happening, or it may seem at times that we still have so many defilements to deal with, we should understand and we should be clear in our minds that there is no possibility for us to fall away. The Buddha said, Ababbo parihanaya. Because we understand the nature of mindfulness, because we, we've experienced this clear state of mind, we have to remind ourselves, this is a clear state of mind. This mind is a pure state of mind. This is what we know when we, ex when we use it. Every time we're mindful, we can see the purity, we can see the clarity of the mind. 
the problem is that then we we have all these defilements come up and we become discouraged thinking that it's not doing anything. But the truth is it can't help but do something. Whether we see it or not, whether it becomes evident to us in, in the practice or not, we have to think that there's no possibility for this not to affect us in a good way because it's a clear state of mind. If you get angry, you see that the anger changes you as a person. You see that how, how we've developed these habits. If you become greedy, if you like something, it will make you want it more and more and more. But it's not something that happens overnight. You can't be mindful one day and expect the next day to be enlightened or even to be to be happy, actually. You might still be miserable the next day and then you wonder, what was what good was yesterday? I practiced and I'm still miserable. So the, the, the practice, we have to see it as something gradual. The Buddha said, just as the ocean slopes gradually and doesn't immediately drop off, so too the Buddha's teaching is a gradual teaching, one that goes gradually and requires patience and requires uh, perseverance, requires one to be steadfast like the fire. So the Buddha said we should, we should never be um, discouraged thinking that it's not coming quickly or thinking that, that we're, we're, we're gaining nothing. Just as drops go into the cup, eventually it fills up and overflows. The Buddha said, gave his reassurance here that it's not possible for such a person to fall away because they're developing good habits. The key here is that every mind state, every moment that we react or interact with an object, we're changing who we are. We're changing our habits. We're changing the way the mind works. Every moment. And so every moment of mindfulness, we are changing who we are. We're not static beings. Everything changes us. Every instant changes who we are. And so every moment, we have the ability to shape our future and to change the direction of our lives. The Buddha said, not only do they not fall away, but even fur furthermore, such a person, Nibbāna Seva Santiti, is quite close to Nibbāna. So as our practice progresses, the sign that we're becoming coming closer to Nibbāna, closer to freedom, is that our, our, our is this, this heedfulness, that the mind begins to delight, begins to leap out at the chance to be mindful. In the beginning, we have to push ourselves to be mindful and stop ourselves from clinging to things. Once we develop in the practice and, and, and come closer to freedom, closer to the realization of Nibbāna, the mind will be the opposite. It will delight in heedfulness and it will cringe at the idea of, of defilement. It will, it will move away from, the, from any desire for, being, uh, for, for clinging or for, for, being, for aversion towards things. So our practice should be in this regard and we shouldn't, we shouldn't, we shouldn't have any doubt about this because we can see clearly what, what heedfulness does, what vigilance does, what mindfulness does to our minds. So the more that we can create in our minds, the more, the more we can develop this habit, the closer we become to Nibbana, the closer we come to Nibbana until our mind delights in it and eventually inclines towards it and our practice becomes uh, a work of its own and there's nothing more for us to do because of the inclination of the mind, at which point the mind enters into Nibbāna and realizes freedom from suffering. So just another short teaching, this is two verses, and we've now finished the Appamadavanga. So thank you all for 
listening and now we continue with our practice.